Garden on the Moon is a knowledge center bringing together teachings and insights, experiences and stories, people and beings. It's better than a dream. So many things I prayed for. Clay Marsh is an American physician, scientist, educator, and university administrator whose purpose is to, quote, live the mindset of unity, peace, joy, love, creativity, and abundance. He has been vice president and executive dean for health sciences at West Virginia University since 2015. Matt Presti is a meta-scientist, musician, philosopher, poet, volunteer firefighter, practitioner of the universal law, natural science, and living philosophy. He was the president of the University of Science and Philosophy that used to be the Walter Russell Foundation. Clay Marsh introduced me a few years ago to Walter and Lau Russell's incredible work that provides a scientific and living philosophic understanding of man himself, the mind of man, the soul of man, and his relationship to the universal one. I thought connecting Clay and Matt, who is now the guardian of Russell's teachings and heritage, on anything mind-related would be an interesting conversation. And it was. Thank you so much, Clay and Matt, for joining this conversation today. Um, before we diving into the subject of the mind, uh, I thought it would be really helpful for the audience if you could each introduce yourself to us. Uh, you go ahead, please. So, hello, everybody. My name is Clay Marsh, and I am a physician uh, by training. I'm a lung and intensive care unit specialist. I've had the privilege to have a number of different experiences around medicine and health and, and, and have a really growing sort of draw toward trying to understand what is the foundation of healing. And, and, and as Emily knows, um, I read a lot, and uh, and certainly Matt, I've read some of the work that you've done, which is really terrific. And and Emily and I do have, I think, a special connection with each other. But but it's always really amazed me to know that the root word of heal uh, and health and holy and holistic is hail, which means whole. And so this idea that we are really part of a more single thing than separate pieces of a number of things. This idea about perhaps, you know, monadism versus dualism is something that has become more interesting to me and, and uh, something I hope that we explore and trying to keep it within the confines of, you know, of healthcare where we can start to perhaps focus, refocus our efforts instead of recovering constantly uh, and saving people from their problems and rescuing from failure, we can start to really turn to helping people live wonderful lives and, and, uh, and to have extreme levels of well-being uh, and to, you know, to discover what I think heaven on earth is which I think has to do with vibration. As Tesla said, you know, uh, give me vibration frequency 
um, and uh, I'm blocking on the third and, and, and will rule the world. And, and so I do think that as we go forward, trying to blend medicine, quantum physics, some of the teachings I know, Matt, that you've done is something that may give us a number of new insights on how we can help people live much better and, and, and lives that, uh, that they dream of as opposed to the lives that they're living today. So that's my intro. Matt, I'll turn it to you. Well, thank you, Clay. Um, my name is Matt Presti, president of the University of Science and Philosophy, formerly the Walter Russell Foundation. I started in January of 2015 as director of operations and took over for Michael P. Hudak, former president, on Jan January 1st, 2016. Uh, since we've moved the artwork, which was in storage for 21, nearly 21 years in a warehouse out to the world to put back on display, the Russell Museum opened July 4th. Uh, 2019, officially reopened, I should say, in its new location at 518 West Main Street in downtown, beautiful downtown, historic Waynesboro, Virginia. So 40 tons of art and sculpture and uh, various effects, personal effects and things of that nature were uh, restored and put back on display. Uh, we continually keep the works going out, the teachings of the Russells, which they began with their effort in 1948, December 2nd, when they founded the University of Science and Philosophy at Swannanoa, historic Swannanoa on Afton Mountain in Virginia. Uh, 1998, everything went into storage. And as I said, we through 2018, uh, three and a half years into my tenure with the university, we're able to move everything out and get his incredible artwork back out on display. Uh, the teachings, again, we, we have been keeping them in print, going out to the world. We ship to over 60 countries plus, uh, internationally as well as nationally, uh, most every state. We have, since 1948, probably more than 3 million in a student body total worldwide. And that's just a guesstimation. But based on the, the amount of orders and, and things that go out per year, uh, we are making better headway at getting his work out there. And, and the mission of my administration is to simply preserve the Russell legacy as it is for all posterity. It's flaws and it's good points because it's important that we look at uh, the historical aspects of any person or legacy in, in true eyes so that we can understand uh, what it is we're seeing and how that evolved over its lifespan. So uh, in much the same way that, that other foundations and things of that nature keep the great work of these incredible minds alive, that's sort of what we're doing here at the university as well, as well as keeping these teachings going out to the world. And I couldn't agree more with you, Clay. The world needs a, a better way to look at healing, you know, and uh, having a brother who's a gastroenterologist and one of the top doctors in the St. Louis metropolitan area, a professor at SLU as well. We vary a little differently on our approach to healing. You know, he, he looks at it from a more physical level. I look at it more of a mental thing, but I think there's a happy medium in between those roads that we can certainly expose more of a actionable plan to, to meet the two in the middle. Uh, the de demarcation between body and mind is really, as the Russells would say, uh, mind is causal, where the, the physicalist sees body as causal, or material as matter is causal. So in that differentiation is where really all the, the uh, disagreements on the philosophical approaches to both mind and matter, you know, begin and end. So hopefully we will learn more in this dialogue and, and find ways to expound upon those things that can bring us closer to answers 
and uh, start to employ those in our mutual lives as well as sharing them with the world. So I'm honored to be here. Clay, tell, tell me a little bit about how you got into the work of the Russells. I'm interested. Well, I'm, I am really, Matt, being drawn to many things that are very different than, than, you know, we train students and practicing healthcare workers. And I think that what, you know, for me at least, it's been a bit dissatisfying the way that healthcare is, you know, is currently constructed. We, you know, as a country, U.S. spends almost twice as much money as the next country in the world. And we have next to last outcomes, durable outcomes of all westernized countries. And, and you know, 70% of physicians, healthcare workers report being feeling burned out. So the current structure and the current approach is not one that is facilitating sort of foundational healing, but merely starting to look at, you know, we're like big garages and service centers as opposed to trying to construct the best car that we can. Part of curiosity always leads us down paths that, uh, that if we're open-minded, that, you know, we, we, um, we don't reject. And, and my entree to this was really probably through quantum physics. And, and to me, quantum physics and, and, you know, metaphysics is starting to, to merge into the same pathway. And so I've been, there's been a lot of books that I've been led to and, and this is one that impacted me enough, at least in the way that it was presented and, and affected the thinking that I was doing, that I shared that with Emily. And that's sort of what led us here. Um, but I do think that as we continue to ask questions about, you know, what is this? What is that? We get down to the level that we can't know. And I personally like this concept, as you have suggested, that mind is first and matter is the reflection of mind. And as we go forward, it really is about frequencies and find frequencies that more balance out each other perfectly than we evolve the complexity and which eventually returns us to our whole being, which I think is important in facilitating health, since I do think disease, dis-ease is aptly named, uh, and I think is probably the root cause of most of the health issues that we see and the, and the rapid aging we see in some people. And, and that's been demonstrated by Elizabeth Blackburn, a Nobel laureate, and Elizabeth or Alyssa Appel that demonstrated that people that perceive more stress over time, age faster biologically, and Anne Case and Angus Deaton's work. So, so it all it all sort of makes sense if you put it together in a certain way. But I did find the that book and uh, particularly very um, influential in affecting how I thought about things and I'm thinking about things. So both of you are scientists. Um, might you even do define yourself as a meta scientist? Um, I would love to learn how science plays a role in your life uh, and in your work, uh, how it affects your understanding of the world, your relationship with others. Well, I'll take that if you don't mind, Clay, to begin. Metascience really is a term the Russells created in the 40s, 30s, 40s. Metaphysics became a popular subject and metaphysical teachings are are around that time more typically associated with like the concept of ascended masters different dimensions based on the work of edwin abbott 
who was a theologian in the UK who wrote the book Flatlanders that spoke of a fourth dimension beyond the third, which is really, in my estimation, more of a science fiction than an actual scientific fact. It's, it's the, the Russells would say uh, the mind is dimensionless. So whatever thoughts we have, just because we have the thoughts, if they don't exist in a body form of material, then it's just a stillborn idea. You know, without body, there can be no existence. So the ideas we have are all wonderful and great, but until we actually construct a physical body to house that idea, to represent it as a creation, a, a freezing of our thoughts, if you will, into crystalline form, then it is metaphysical. Whereas metascientific is the absolute demon demonstrable end goal of creating a body to house your thought, like a painting would be the body of a painter, a poem would be the body of a poet, and so on, a composer is the mind behind the composition or the symphony. So that's how they kind of viewed the difference between the metaphysical, especially in the New Age movement of the 80s, which took it much farther than the 30s and 40s and the philosophy movement, philosophy movement, uh, which was populated by multiple individuals of that day uh, who were writers and such like Helena Blavatsky and uh, Alice Bailey, the likes of others. You know, there's quite a quite a popular movement. So the Russells distinguished their work from metaphysicality by terming it meta-science, and they said that the difference was great. And I think it's more because Russell, running around in the circles in New York, had come across many spiritualists who were fanciful in their ideas and, and communing with uh, ascended masters who floated on clouds high above the the earth. And he said, what, for instance, I wonder why they don't get hit by airplanes. You know, he kind of di didn't fancy it because it was a bit of what he, you know, what many would term magical thinking. So it was important to be practical in the spirituality approach for the Russells. And that's how they presented their material. Um, his message is one of many in the world, but of these many messages in the world, not all of them have 40 tons of art and sculpture, which is only really 2% of the work he actually did. The other 98% is out in the world. So he has the physical evidence to back up the fact that the message does work. And I like to say for my own efforts, being a, a meta-scientist, the proof is in the pudding in you know, you have a vision and you hold it and then you create the body for it. And that's exactly what I did to, to get the artwork back out into a a uh, nearly $1 million building that a benefactor on our board of directors graciously purchased for, for this effort. I want to thank Mr. William Cranwell for that. And uh, that, that made this whole thing possible. But holding that thought from the beginning and seeing it to its completion, to its fruition, is really the, the process of creation. And that's what these teachings embody, which is a very practical approach to uh, the question and purpose of spirituality. And in that process, when one learns to do it, they can build a business, a friendship, a marriage, a relationship, um, a car, a bus, a plane, a, uh, a tire, you know, as Goodyear did he, for 35 years. He struggled with vulcanized rubber and finally had his breakthrough and the whole village thought he was mad for boiling rubber in his living room. But nonetheless, I mean, when you when you stick to the to the process and you complete it, then behold, that work stands before you. And I think in large part, a lot of the physical sciences 
are unaware of this fact. And I think the Russells, they the reason they named it the University of Science and Philosophy, uh, philosophy is more or less their view of what religion could and should be, which it really is a philosophy. So is the philosophy of science being materialistic is also a philosophy. Uh, despite Mr. Hawking's claim that, that uh, philosophy is dead, I, I would have to disagree because the very basis of materialist science is itself a philosophy, a way of thinking about the world, uh, just more mechanistic, if you will. But there's a happy marriage between those two sections of society and education and, and all the industry of man, which science and, and uh, philosophy, that marriage can bring about uh, the kind of union union of humanity that they had thought would be the one that that eases man's troubles and burdens and and helps to create a character brotherhood and sisterhood of people who populate this world that can work together to create the kind of um, the kind of circumstances the kind of characteristics and, and situational awareness that we need to solve the problems of humanity together and ultimately, um, they would cite often Edward Markham's great quote, in vain we build the city if we do not first build the man. So you couldn't cut science out, but you couldn't cut philosophy out. But if you put them together in a way that works, is in harmony, and is tuned up, if you will, then the sky's the limit on human possibility and ingenuity. Thank you so much, Matt, for, for this perspective on, on science and and the importance of connecting it to philosophy to bring humanity forward, actually. Um, Claire, I would be really interested to hear your view on this interaction between science and philosophy from the standpoint of health, healthcare, and ultimately healing. Well, thank you, Matt. That was really terrific. And, and, and Emily, um, you know, it's interesting that when you look at the root of the word science, it's sire, which is to know, and the root word of consciousness is to know with. So, so science and consciousness have been connected for forever, but we have artificially separated those. And if you read more of the sages and, and you read science as it came up, the separation between science and philosophy and and ways of thinking were actually part of the same thing. And, and again, artificially, we have separated those. And, and as Matt said, you know, when you start to look at the data, when you look at, at mainstream, you know, science and look at Nobel Prize winners, then what we see, Emily, is that the relationship between our thoughts, our emotions, and our feelings and our health outcomes is direct. So, for instance, in a study done by the Nobel Prize winner, Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize for telomeres, which are the ends of DNA, and the longer they are, the younger you are biologically, and the shorter they are, the older you are biologically, because they continue to reduce in size as the cell continues to replicate and go through cell cycle. That, that Elizabeth Blackburn and a colleague, Alyssa Pell, did a study in a group of, of women who were all about the same age, very well socio, socioeconomically. And they asked them to give a 
to fill out a validated questionnaire related to the stress they felt that they were having in their lives. And objectively, the stress was perhaps more, you know, um, more even across the group. But the moms that reported the most stress on this questionnaire actually aged biologically much faster than moms that didn't. And even though they were basically the same chronological age in that study, the most aged mom biologically was 17 years older than the least aged biological mom. And it just had to do with their perception of stress. So as I said with Tesla, and the third one was energy. So give me energy, frequency, and vibration, and, and we'll, we'll rule, rule the world. So I think that when you start to look at quantum physics and start to look at things like wave-particle duality, which basically says that energy can exist as a wave, a multi-potential state, or a particle, which is a single, more coherent state, and the thing that drives wave to particle is an observer. So there is, I think, some really strong scientific evidence to suggest that we as observers are part of making the world, actively perhaps making the world that we live in. And so when we start to look at vibration, which is generated you know, by thoughts and feelings and emotions, and start to look at those with dis-ease when, when they're really quite unbalanced, then in general, that may then bring, you know, that reflect that energy that's inside of people that basically is fear-based, scarcity-based. We also know from work from Ann Case and Angus Deaton at Princeton that people, there's a group of people that are 45 to 55 years old, non-Hispanic whites, high school, less than a high school education, who are dying at a really rapid rate. And they're dying of things like overdose and suicide and, and addiction, alcoholism, drugs, et cetera. And when we start to look at a way to measure these events that lead to this feeling of despair and hopelessness in childhood called adverse tra uh, childhood traumas, then people that reflect more than six adverse childhood traumas, and these involve um, neglect, family dysfunction, and, and, and fear-based you know, scarcity events, people that don't feel loved, don't feel that they're worthy, et cetera, that, that, that people that have six of these events or more have a, in, in research that's followed, up to a 20-year lesser lifespan than people that do. So that we know that how we see the world, you know, the Anna is Nen, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. And as Matt said, you know, I love Rumi, the Sufi poet, who said, yesterday I was clever and wanted to change the world. Today I am wise and decided to change myself. And so as we go forward, you know, really the first way that we help others heal as we heal ourselves. And everything in our life, I think, may well be mirrors to our own healing. And, and you know, we might feel like, oh, we're being punished because we're here and we're suffering or we're in pain. But fundamentally, I think that if we change our mindset, flip our lens, you know, we may be part of the greatest adventure that anybody could ever, you know, experience. You know, we're, we're constantly getting challenged with new lessons to learn. We get to create, you know, new solutions, which give us this amazing repertoire of experiences. And if we look at them as to our benefit, not to our detriment, then we meet great friends. We get to do really interesting things like this podcast. And so I think that as we go forward, 
a lot of the way that I hope that we can change health and healthcare is to have people change their internal narratives, to flip the lens from scarcity and fear to abundance and love. And not just to do it in a way where like, oh, I'm doing this because I want to get into heaven or, you know, whatever, because actually I think we're all a piece of God. I think it's like, you know, like the, the Japanese philosopher Satoru said, individually, we are raindrops together. We're an ocean. And I think we're all part of that ocean. And with that, I think that we are powerful creators and we don't realize that we're creating through a lens of scarcity and fear, we're creating negatively, which I think is what hell really is. And if we create positively with love and abundance, I think that's heaven. And I think that that's in front of us. Last thing I'll say is I think everything is a, is a set of cycles. And we've just gone through a really powerful set of cycles. A 2,500-year cycle is superimposed on a 25,600-year cycle is superimposed on a 125,000-year cycle. So I think we're on the return voyage home, if you will. And the Mayan calendar, the December 12, 2012, the end of the world, I think is really about that journey home. So I'm very optimistic. I think we're here all for a reason. And I think the world and, and life for people is about to get a whole lot better, even with COVID and our, perhaps our mirror, hopefully. Thank you, Clay. I so agree with you on the potential of today and the new narrative we are all uh, meant to create here. Um, to go back to the topic of the mind, what I find interesting nowadays is that um, is how the mind is everywhere, actually. Mindfulness practices and teachings are booming. Meditation and mind-related apps are spreading. The, 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 the science, the research that goes into the mind is, is increasing. Um, yet, they all seem to connect with the uh, management of your senses and, and your brain, really, versus the mind. Um, so why are we referring to the mind here while actually we, we, we mean the, the brain and, um, what is the definition of the mind from your perspective? Well, I can say I've been on a study to figure out what the mind is. And until I had come across the work of Dr. Walter Russell, Lau Russell, I, I really hadn't given it any thought from a top-down view from the cause to the effect. I was looking at things from the effect to the cause. And I found science to be utterly complex, especially in its uh, explanations of matter. And uh, the search for the God particle is a good example that, again, you, Clay had mentioned the particle wave duality and that when we observe a wave, it actually collapses. Um, Russell had looked at the quantum idea and he said, of it in new concept of the universe that that whole theory that energy comes in packets was a travesty to nature and i found that interesting because i, I had to come from a uh, what the bleep do we know perspective and and i was a fan of that and, and studied a lot of the work of uh like uh, i'd read little richard Feynman, a few others uh, who had tried to tie quantum physics to to the near east uh teachings and things of that nature but what it was really missing, I guess, was was a Western perspective, mystical perspective. And and Walter Russell being that kind of a mystical Western mind is spoken terms that I could readily understand. And especially from a musical point of view, seeing the universe as, as a musical 
tonal creation really helped being a musician. I was able to to understand that quite quite adequately. And uh, as for the math and the you know plank eleven plank dimensions and you know things of that nature, again I think that the dimensional work, uh, the idea of dimensions was introduced by Albert Einstein because he was a uh, a reader of the Flatlanders book written by Edwin Abbott back in the 18 late 1800s and so um, that whole understanding of, of how uh, mind comes into being from the cause to the effect was brought into perspective into focus by the work of the Russells um, it's not the first time I had encountered mind being causal, but it was the first time I encountered mind being causal with a complete set of diagrams, a complete set of definitions, updates to my own current definitions. Uh, for instance, there's many words one could use to to become to make an example of the synonymity between the word God creator and mind. I mean, there's many different words that, that the Russells would use. And I did a presentation prior to our 2017 homecoming where I covered a lot of these words. And just to name a few, these, these are all synonymous in the Russell teachings. Uh, they mean the same thing. Mind, stillness, sexlessness, oneness, God, creator, um, the undivided, the eternal, the fulcrum. So basically all motions are extensions from these synonymous words. And mind really is consciousness. So the grand ocean is God. The great ocean of consciousness is the creator. And all of us are, like Rumi said, a drop in the ocean, right? So really it's, we are the creator, as the Russells would say, to the degree that we are aware that we are. And you can only operate with the knowledge that you have. When you don't operate with knowledge, you do what is called experimenting. And the Russells, uh, Dr. Russell especially, was adamantly opposed to experimenting because his friend Hudson Maxim had blown his hand off trying to create smokeless gunpowder. So there, he had an example of a, of a friend who played tennis with him, and he could no longer play tennis with him. <laughs> to the degree that he used to because he had to switch hands because of his accident. And he actually painted Hudson Maxim. So it was a personal experience for him to, to say that, you know, you can know the universe without having to experiment to understand it. But if you're going to understand it, you have to see the cause and effect as it really is. Mind is causal, matter is an effect. And that's really the differentiation between the philosophy of the materialist scientist versus the philosophy of, say, the mystic, mystical approach or the hermetic, hermetic approach, which is mind is causal for the most part. And so uh, Russell would go on out of his mind experience of 39 days in the state of what he called illumination, which was uh, knowing without learning, uh, a heartfelt experience. Uh, scientifically, he explained it as a short circuit between the two hemispheres of the brain, an electrical short circuit that resulted in the consciousness basically becoming detached from the body, but wholly aware of it, but only through what he termed flux threads of light, that his consciousness became very much expanded for a period of 39 days. And 
His is an interesting story regarding the whole of his illumination. He had several, well, illuminations every year, but major ones every seven years of his life that started when he was seven years old. So in his 49th year, he would undergo 39-day transformation into the light, as he called it. And that's what most of the home study course seeks to explain is uh, during that time, he wrote down 39,000 words and he drew hundreds of charts and graphs. He had understanding of chemistry, which he had no like of chemistry or never studied it. Having dropped out in the fourth grade, you know, his education was limited. And then he did do some art school at the Massachusetts Normal Art School. But all of this knowledge he acquired from this experience, which lends to the credibility of cause being mind itself. And I would just say to, to prove that point, I will offer as evidence all man-made items and things, which there are trillions in existence. Uh, each of our rooms are full of them if you look around. All of the things you're seeing that are man-made must first be an idea in the mind, and then you must build that body for it to exist. And that's, you know, exhibit A, if you will. But ultimately, Regarding the, the causal state of mind, mind really is the creator. Mind is consciousness. Um, and, and according to the Russells, which, which were, again, just a transformative leap for me from the materialist approach to, you know, I've written music. I've, I've got 300 plus songs that I've written. And they were all thoughts in my mind. They weren't bodies that I just found and put together. They were actual thoughts and feelings. And I had to play them and record them and of course, that's the way it works, right? So a creator who is, you know, a composer, for instance, or a painter who has hundreds of paintings or a poet who has hundreds of poems or even a businessman who's created businesses or, you know, head of a, have a, head of a department such as Clay can, can see that, the, you know, the mind is causal to get things done. You have to have that mental fortitude to, to birth your idea into the world and, and you become sort of a son of yourself and uh, your planets are your co-workers that coalesce around your ideas, for instance, as a manager or a president would be. So ultimately, that you know, the proof is in the demonstrative uh, material bodies, but the process to form mind versus matter must have idea as its, as its core and then the desire and the will to unfold that idea. And that's where the Russells really came in for me and were able to line those things up in a way that cause and effect really made sense. Maybe I would just add, Emily and, and Matt, if it's okay, that, you know, the maybe the other question, Emily, is what is mind? And so as we start to, again, to me, um, I, I really do like Nikola Tesla a lot. And, and I think I quoted to you when somebody asked Einstein, what the smartest man on earth thought about something, he goes, well, you should ask Tesla. So, um, but, but, but the idea is that energy is not created or destroyed. And if we look at frequency and vibration, and Matt made the, um, the association with music, which I think is really, really powerful. But, but as we also look at quantum physics, what we find is that when you look at, at material things, Material things are made of atoms, and atoms are almost all just space. So if you put, you know, if you if you look at at the space between atoms, it would be like 
putting the one piece on the floor of the Superdome in New Orleans and the next piece on the ceiling. That's that's the space relatively in between things that we see as solid. And we also know that we see a very limited range of frequencies. So, so our material world is really very limited, probably what less than two or three percent of the frequencies available in total are the ones that we can experience. So, so science really does measure the impact into our sensory assessment. So we can only read what we can measure in that sort of very narrow range, where there's a tremendous additional set of ranges, which would be events that would be outside of our experiential range. And, and, and I've been really drawn to this concept. When you look at the theory of relativity that Einstein did, the equation is E equals MC squared. And, and the one piece that I think is really amazing is if you look at the speed of light, then it's been shown, and Einstein thought this as well, but if you're going 99.999, keep going out to the nines for a while, percent the speed of light yourself, and you turn on a flashlight, the speed of light from that flashlight is just the same as if you were standing still. So the speed of light is the only thing in our environment that is invariant, no matter what the rate of speed of the observer, it ha it's the same all the time, every time. So it implies really that it is perhaps outside of our frame of reference because it is not affected by any part of our frame of reference. So light is what carries information into our environment and it happens as a carrier of light and information, then as we look at the frequency and the speed, at the speed of light, all distances go to zero. And so when you look at entanglement, then you have a plausible way to say that maybe instead of things being separated, things are actually really together. We just cannot sense it in that way. So all of us perhaps are all part of the same thing since we're all you know, energy, since we're all information, light provides that information, then really in that experience when people have the near-death experiences of that tunnel of light, well, maybe that's really what we are at its basis. And as we think about light then as a speed and a set of frequencies, then as Matt said, the way that we perhaps create is we take something that is not coherent. If we look at light and have a 40 watt light bulb, then it lights the room. But if that 40 watt light bulb becomes coherent, then we have a laser that will burn through a big piece of metal. So this idea about coherence, which really to me is around the vibration, the frequency, and then as we said, the energy, which never is created or destroyed, maybe really the foundation, I believe it is the foundation of who we are and what we are. And as Matt said, if we can get to the point where we can associate the fact that if we feel like we're in jail, then you know we're the jailer, the door's open, we have the key. And the only people that keep us from living the best life maybe is ourselves, our own belief system, the way that we see the world. And so if we can start to understand that we are indeed powerful creators, that we're here not to suffer, but to learn and to grow and to experience, and we're all drawn to what are the bigger questions. And, and while Matt is quoting the Russells who are obviously 
very, very talented people that receive some perhaps divine, you know, information. But no matter who we are, we don't understand exactly what's here because I don't think we're meant to. And maybe the idea is instead of being only focused at being able to understand things in a tangible way, maybe we should just enjoy things a little bit more. Look through the eyes of a child, you know, have our eyes open and really see because there's miracles that surround us every single day, but only if we notice them. But if we're inspired by them, if we're grateful for them, then it's been shown that our lifespan increases, our life quality increases. So maybe the secret is not in studying, you know, books and philosophy, although that's interesting for us, which is great. But maybe the secret is to really being grateful for the time that we have. Because at the end of our life, you know, and you look back, you want to say that I lived a meaningful life by whatever qualities those are. And if you can look at life as a great adventure and a great journey with lots of opportunities to continue to grow and to learn and you share it with people that you love, then that's pretty good, no matter what the right answers are at the end. I love that, Clay. Um, I think it's so important to have a, a broader perspective on what life is ultimately. Um, this actually leads me to another question uh, related to lo the location of the mind. Where is the mind? Um, for most of us, it seems that the mind is actually located in the brain. Um, that's what I've learned, you know, since I was a kid. However, uh, listening to both of you and getting deeper into the essence of the mind, the mind feels like it's actually everywhere. Um, in fact, according to the Indians, it is located in the heart. Um, from the perspective of traditional Chinese medicine, it is located in our organs. So would this be uh, another set of truths, you know, we are meant to re-explore or at least understand with all its um, intricacies and, and at the same time, uh, it's, it's simplicity, really. So, so I think that, you know, if you read the Tao and read other sort of more foundational texts, then I think mind may be sort of thought of as the nothingness that everything comes from. And, and so, you know, again, we can only see in a very limited range as humans with our senses. So anything outside of that range would not, would be invisible to us, would, would seem like it didn't exist. And, and if you start to think about how do we have something from nothing, well, maybe it's not really, nothing is not the absence of anything. Nothing is a source of energy, of frequency, of creative capability that we cannot sense in our five sense world. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, I've read a lot. And one of the things I really, really enjoy is this idea about zero and infinity. So zero and infinity as numbers are are part of a range of, of mathematical numbers that many people don't know what to do with. So any number divided by zero is is at some level called infinity, but in fact it's undefined. And and if you use infinity in anything, then it becomes also undefined because infinity is a finite sort of concept about something that is not finite. 
So if we can think about mind as, as not finite, as not something that we can define by our own frame of reference, but is a creative source of all frequencies that, you know, when in perfect harmony, vibrating incoherence is, you know, is puts us in that powerful creative space that some people would call God or the Tao or whatever. But if you can name it and try to explain it, then that's maybe not even it. So I do believe that as we go forward, then we are ourselves frequencies. And as we talked about with music, the vibrations, the harmonies, the more things fit together in coherence, the more beautiful the sound, the more powerful the impact. And so as we look at ourselves as all individual droplets of the ocean, as Matt said, then to me, you could also say that we're all monads that when together create the ocean, but separately, each of us have our own series of frequencies and energy inside of us that is not able to be destroyed or created. But in fact, in that way, as we continue to gain the ability to get more coherent inside of us, to be able to deal with things more complex, both inside of us and sharing that between other monads, which as a community, the entirety creates, I believe, the ocean in which people might refer to it as God. But we each have that creative capacity. But at our real truth, we're all part of, if you want to call that mind, then I think that that's appropriate. But that would be mind with a capital M, which is the organizing force of creation that has existed, you know, and created what we experience today in our universe, our bounded experience that is bounded by the five senses, but also by a universe that that is expanding, yet is finite. Uh, and when the universe gets to completion as a cycle, it will do the big crunch instead of the big bang, and that universe will be over. But I don't believe we will as energy beings, then the next one forms. And I think that this is an eternal event, which constantly elevates our ability to create and to, um, and to grow uh, and to become more perfect. Well, Emily had asked uh, one particular question prior to uh, this last one and re retouched on it again, but mind, and I've, I've studied quite a lot about the mind from different perspectives, perspective of illuminates, the perspective of poets and philosophers, and really there's, there's no absolute 100% for sure answer. Um, I would say by my own experience, even even myself and my own explorations of what mind truly is uh, and is not has been just an incredible journey in, in discovering. What I will say about Dr. Russell's differentiation between the mind and the brain is in his experience of the, the divine experience of the, the white light of mind, which he had for 39 days, he said he was able to see 360 degrees in the spectrum where where most people can only see the spectrum of light. And you can read the, the, the great work of Goethe and others who 
who went into what is the true nature of light. And um, he was able to see the actual construction of the atom and how it was created. And those were what were reflected in his charts and drawings. What's incredible about that is he saw that true energy, which is the cause of motion, the creator call it, or mind, whichever words you term or wish to use, is at 90 degrees to all motion. And so it's not visible to us. And much like Descartes would say, the seed of the soul is in the pineal gland, which is the central, one of the central organs of the brain, along with the, uh, the pineal and the uh, pituitary center of the brain. But interestingly enough, the uh, experience of that flash of light occurs at the moment of uh, severance of, of body, which is the electric short circuit between the lobes of the brain. So he was able to see the 90 degrees that we would otherwise not see with the eyes and the ears or the five senses, for instance. And in that, he understood that mind is not in the brain, but rather thinks through the brain. So really, as Nikola Tesla would say, I am but a receiver for the great mind that is behind the universal construct. And so when science sees matter, they're not looking for a fulcrum because there's no way to measure stillness. You cannot measure silence. It registers as zero. But Dr. Russell would say, is that not too something? you know, to, to take notice of. How often do we think of the breath in and we hit a point of stillness and we breathe out, we hit another point of stillness and we have to do what? We reverse direction. So that creates a polarity of interchange of in-breaths and out-breaths, which Dr. Russell asserted was the true nature of reality, that, that the universal construct is not uh, one of dissolution and explosion, but rather one of charge and discharge eternally. So he saw a two-way motion universe where our current mainstream physics sees a one-way heat-death-dying universe that will freeze in a big crunch and, and basically repeat itself again. Uh, similar but different in ways, um, he acknowledged that the fulcrum and energy being 90 degrees to motion, which our fulcrum would be dead center, we have two perfect hemispheres. You put your hands together, you can see the mirror symmetry. And so there's basically the cube and the sphere is the model that he, he gave to the world and the understanding of compression and expansion sequences and how all of nature sets up a polarity, a division with two poles, much like the earth. So the poles are like your nostrils of the earth. They breathe in, they breathe in cold air and the mouth is like the equator located at the, the center, it exhales heat. So planets, suns, stars, galaxies, animals, plants, trees, minerals, all breathe in a two-way motion of charge and discharge. And that's one of the great things he brought uh, to understanding the, the true omnipresence, omni, uh, omnipotence, and and uh, omniscience of mind itself and what it's able to do. But ultimately, consciousness thinks through the brain, uh, not with it. And so when the body dies, which is all bodies are temporal, truth is not temporal. It is and always will be. So I think to understand truly cause and effect, mind is being caused, which is at 90 degrees to motion, 
when it desires to exist, it divides that motion and creates a polarity. So much the same way we have to lay down at night to charge so that we can stand up at 90 degrees to our natural rest state and discharge throughout a day is another example of how charge and discharge truly is. You know, you have to lay down in the fulcrum at 90 degrees to the earth. I don't know anybody who sleeps standing up. You know, I've tried before, it's not very comfortable. But um, so anyways, those are little little trinkets of, of knowledge that he gave us uh, from his experience. And, and he said that the atom was um, also a, a division of, of that still white light. And the work of Edwin Moeller, uh, who was a uh, one of the first to use electron microscopy to photograph uh, tungsten atoms, showed that the atoms were actually hollow and that they were surrounded by rings. And those rings interpenetrated into other atoms' rings, which are emanations of vibration. And he said of the the ball, the the, the studded ball models of atoms that they had absolutely no existence. That nature doesn't. Uh, set itself up in crazy orbits like that. It's it's two implosive uh, concentrative efforts of compression and one opposite 90 degree expansive effort. And so if you were to look at hydrogen, for instance, and you'd see one ring, which they call an electron, you know, if you threw a stone of hydrogen into a pond, there would only be one ring. It, 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 basically equating to Russell science, how he saw it. If you throw a stone of plutonium into a pond, there would be 93 rings. But that's all there would be, because each element has its own vibrational tonal input, which is protonic, neutral, which is the whole centering it, and then the expansion at 90 degrees, which is the electronic emission force. So it was more of a, a living active as opposed to a particle sort of understanding. Uh, the Russell cosmology entirely is based on waves. Particles are waves. If you look into them very closely and blow them up, that you will actually see them waving. They're not still. So as much as a chunk of granite may look like it's not moving, it actually is vibrating very quickly. And others say that the human body vibrates at 570 trillion times a second. Just imagine that for a second. What an incredible vibration rate. You know, that's why we can't walk through walls. If we were vibrating at less of a frequency, much lower, we could probably be more etheric and walk through physical items. But um, anyways, that being what it is, uh, no, went off on a little tangent there. But yeah, mind is not in the brain. It simply thinks through the brain. And that is the real power that we all possess. And maybe, Emily, if I could just add. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting concept. I don't know if it is true, but maybe the brain is like the television receiver or a radio receiver, that, that the messages are out there. The question whether you can tune into them or not is really related to that match between the vibration of the message and, and the ability to pick up that on a receiver end from the brain, much like a television set. If your television set's broken, you may not get the TV show, but the message is still there for others to get. The second issue I think is really interesting is when we think about nothing or zero, within zero is infinity. Right. I mean, so basically all the numbers, as long as they cancel each other out to get zero, zero is contained in every number. 
and 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 therefore an infinity zero is part of it. And inside zero, as long as there is perfect balance, and 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 this idea that Matt talked about about this ninety degree angle, you know, Euler's transformation, which looks at sine and cosine, is really about ninety degrees mathematically to each other, and. For many folks, when you start to look at starting with nothing and then drawing a circle from that first point, you put the the um, you put the pencil down or whatever. Then through that circle, you can certainly draw frequencies. And so this idea that something can come from nothing, I think, is another foundational principle that people have problems with. But if you think about the frequency that we can observe and the fact that within nothing, zero, exists an infinite number of numbers as long as those numbers cancel each other out. Third thing I would say is that when we look at numbers and harmony and wholeness, which I think is about perfect balance, then you also need to include imaginary numbers, which is something else that people have trouble with. Because if you look at five squared, it's 25. To get minus 25, if you square something, you need imaginary numbers. So in order to have perfect balance, then you have to bring in certain elements that for some are difficult to understand or even imagine. So, so I think this is a really interesting discussion, but it starts to frame up where we may end up with medicine of the future, particularly as we look at well-being and health. And I think it's informed by a lot of this information, but it's really inspired by each of our hearts and our ability to become coherent with whatever those things that elevate us. And the more that elevates us and the more we can share with others, mirrors to each other, I think the healthier we get ourselves and the healthier we help other people be, because we're all part of that same coherent network. Today, we live in a world of data, uh, measuring and tracking every aspect of our life, uh, including our health and well-being, of course. Um, in fact, we are tracking our dreams, our sleep, our steps. Um, given all we've said, I'm wondering uh, if this technology is actually limiting ourselves instead of opening ourselves um, to more expensive fields of connection, frequencies, and happiness, ultimately, um, that data in self cannot measure. Um, in fact, what if data could measure, could measure just a tiny part of our well-being um, by focusing only on the tools like the brain uh, rather than the essence, which really is our mind? Um, I feel the more we, we connect beyond data and technology as end goals, um, and the more we connect to the living in its purest and most simple form, um, like just spending time with nature, uh, looking at plants, for example. Um, I know you know how much I love nature. Um, I feel the more we do that, the more we access really that vastness uh, and the ultimate uh, source of our mind um, being and, and really happiness. So what I also like is that that connection to the living is, is actually available to anyone um, outside and inside of ourselves. Um, so maybe our times are also an invitation to a new observation and understanding of the living uh, beyond data and tools, 
which we currently put uh, all our attention uh, and being on. Um, could that be the new education we are meant to create and, and bring forward here? Right. I would just I would just add, and then I'll certainly stop and 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 please ask Matt to contribute too. But 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 I, I really like this idea about flow. You know, flow is the highest condition a human can have, where you're in the zone, where everything kind of slows down. And 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 if you think of our life, like we're on a, a raft on a river, and the flow of the river is going in a certain direction that is taking us back to where we're going to be the healthiest and which I think is our birthright. Most of us are so busy trying to paddle against the current to try to take the boat where we believe we should go, sometimes attracting legions of people to help us. But the current is so inexorable that eventually we all go there. But what if we could change our approach instead of seeking, you know, the riches outside of us, which is what we all almost always do, you know, conditioned to want the bigger this, the better that, the more powerful, the, you know, whatever is going to be seen as winning. But in fact, understand that if we follow the current of our life and are grateful for our life, as we might be if we find out we have a terminal disease or find out we have just a few days left in our life, then maybe living our life that way would allow us to experience our foundational, you know, um, internal health, because I do think that we are made to be healthy. I think that we have blocked that by a lot of the things that we are seeking in dualism. And instead of focusing on duality, understand that duality is just two sides of the same coin. And to be in perfect balance, like the yin yang symbol, we have to marry those two things. And so maybe instead of being so actively focused at measuring things and saying, oh, I'm healthy because I've eaten better. Oh, I'm healthy because I've walked more. Maybe if we believe that our birthright is health, that our birthright is wholeness, that that's who we are, not who we need to become. And we focus on the on the being more than the to doing, then perhaps we start to live a life that is a life that we didn't dream we could live. But maybe it is the it's the default. And we just haven't figured that out yet. I don't know. But it's an interesting to me thought because flow is a releasing event. It's not an activating event. It's a trusting event. It's a giving in event. And it's, uh, and it's an event where we are enjoying the ride and not being afraid of where the journey and the adventure unfolds. And, and if we could all be in that position, I think we would all live more satisfying lives. I so agree with this. Uh, thank you, Clay. Um, what would you say about this, Matt? Well, I'm in full agreement. The analogy of the river is wonderful. It's going against the stream is like holding your breath. You're just going to turn blue. Um, getting stressful is like compressions, putting too much air into a tire. And that's why they say, man, if you don't relax, you're going to blow. Right. So you've got to have a, a balance between your compression and your expansion sequences. So that's why, uh, as Dr. Russell, I keep harping to that, but I'm just so inspired by the work he's done. It, it helped me in a point in my life where, where I was that person who was living to row up the stream as, as opposed to going with the flow. And uh, when the words came to me in, in, in The Secret of Light and each 
I've read many books. There might be one or two nuggets of information that make your little bit of popcorn go off in your mind. Like, wow, that's a incredible truism. And, but it was like every single page. But ultimately what, what I learned from this was that um, wealth is the side effect of right action. And don't make that your goal in life. Make filling your soul bank or, or living from the soul which I would, I would term triality as opposed to duality because you're recognizing the fulcrum. You're getting behind the seesaw of the hemispheres of worry and, and regret and, and, and logic and creativity. And, and you're more or less getting behind that and you're commanding you know, your body to obey the dictates of your mind as opposed to the body commanding the mind for its own pleasures and pleasure principles, be they whatever, you know, food or you know, indulgences and, you know, the seven deadly sins, for instance, there's, there's a plethora of things you can put your mind to the side to attain for the, the pleasures of the body. So ultimately when, when you line yourself up when you tune yourself up, as it were, um, you get behind motion and then you learn to command motion to fulfill, uh, the dictates of your conscience, which some would say is the pursuit of happiness. So what is happiness really? And that's really what we all have to answer. What is what is it that really makes us happy in life and living and working for? And you know, the great teachers would say, take as much joy in scrubbing the toilet as you would in in you know delivering an essay to to a world body, for instance. There's no difference. Uh, there's no task beneath a thoroughbred. And if you're going to be the best you can be then you have to say, you know, everything I do, I'm going to do with love and with joy. And inspiration is the language of light. And when we have inspiration and we follow our inspiration, we'll find that that's sort of a fountain of youth within us. You know, there's all these creative things that each of us could do as children. I would recommend people pick those things back up, learn to reacquaint yourself with those wonderful creative abilities that you have uh, before you went into this particular professional direction or whatever. Those are the little things in the soul that, that give you happiness and help create the flow, as, as Clay said, that makes life really cherished and worth living. And, you know, it's sort of, you, know, you can't give away what you don't possess. So loving yourself enough to listen to your own heart and your own true desires, th those ones that we put away from childhood to enter into the adult world, uh, maybe are worth revisiting, you know, because those are the things that inspire you and, and create that feeling of magic in your life. And, you know, those are the things that I think the great teachers of this world have departed to man. And, and you know, material medicine, I don't think really addresses the mind enough. I'd love to see it look more into it and, and take it into account because it is one half of the equation, really. Um, we're so good at the science of the body, the anatomy, the uh, anthropology, the chemistry, the biology, but where's the study of the mind and how it plays its major role in this? That's the missing link, if you will. And I think once we begin to account for that, we're going to see a, a radical change in, in allopathic medicine, maybe even a marriage between um, the medicine of spirituality that must accompany any me medicine of physicality. And perhaps that'll be where the saving grace is and what helps to, as, as Clay said earlier, the, the six uh, or more events in a person's life 
can possibly be healed if the mind is taken into account. And that's where I think my love for psychology comes into because it, psychology is literally the study of the mind. So um, I would say that the Russell's work was also very much spiritual psychology that is needed in this day and age. And when we can take into, into account all these factors and, and work from a holistic approach, centering from the soul outward, um, commanding the body to be divine with your desires and, and your goodwill, then we're definitely going to see a, a massive change on this planet. Thank you. Uh, Matt, um, could you tell us more about your, your former experience uh, as the president of the University of uh, Philosophy and Science? Um, in fact, I would be curious to see who your students were. Um, also, what is the type uh, of education you provide there? Given the, the importance the Russells gave to the mind, uh, the way we have just explained it, versus just the brain, Um, I was wondering if you guys were giving classes and lecture like any other universities or do you emphasize more on experiential teachings um, that helps more with connecting to, to the source and, and the subtle body? The Russells created what's called the home study course and it was meant to be studied at home uh, alone in the company of yourself and the creator more or less. And they use double spacing between the lines to get you to understand how there's rest between all action. And so the way it's laid out is very purposeful. Um, the course basically, we do have classes, but I, I would call them more meetups as opposed to instruction and teaching. We don't do testing, you know, to see the Russells basically set this whole organization up to not be like the tra traditional universities of, of what they called term parroting or remembering and repeating information by rote. This is information that you're taking into your soul and you're thinking about it very deeply on a very personal level. And we have had probably, I'd say about 3 million plus students worldwide since the inception of all countries, there's a large contingency of students in the River States region in Nigeria who founded their own International Age of Character Club that uh, Leo and Walter recommended students do to discuss the home study course. You know, you, you read it on your own, but then you come together in groups and discuss it and talk about it. So, but as far as testing or remembering and repeating, they, they were uh, adamantly against that. They thought it, it kind of took away from really understanding what, what they were trying to depart, which was a, uh, a roadmap to world brotherhood and sisterhood through uh, the, the, uh, the uh, teaching man what his true self is. In other words, we, we've got all these wonderful academic approaches to the body, but where is the science of the mind? Where is the science of man himself and what he is? And I think that's how they approached from a meta-scientific point of view what they were going to deliver in the world as far as their teachings were concerned. Claire, is that something we could see at your university soon? Um, how about mind therapy classes and teachings, for example? Emily, we've talked a lot about how we need to be more inclusive and perhaps expansive in how we help train people. And, and I think that what Matt said is, is, is very 
accurate in that we oftentimes train people to take standardized tests and to regurgitate information. And we load people up with so much information that they can't really retain that from test to test to test. And, and the only way you really cement that in is by having experience. You know, it, it, it is really interesting though, as, as Matt also said, that the root word for health and the root word for holistic and heal are the same thing. And as we talked about, you know, the, the root word of, of science means to know, the root word of consciousness means to know with. So, so there are connected pieces of the puzzle that we have, you know, separated. And I think that that perhaps is, is, is not the best way to go from a healer standpoint, because as we know, when we see a body that's alive to a body that's dead, that foundational life has gone out of that physical structure. And, and I also like to think of the real us as the energy that powers the body or that the observes the, the, all the experiences as opposed to the real body. Although in, you know, in our experience here in this life, it, it seems like that we are individuals separate than everybody else. You know, I, I really resonate, though, to this idea about being very much connected. You know, the, the, um, the anthropologist Robin Dunbar came up with Dunbar's number, which is 150, which is about the most people you can know, because when we evolved as, as humans and we had tribes to protect and to feed ourselves, it was about the maximum size of a group that you could both feed and that were big enough to protect each other. And, and so as we go forward, I think revisiting some of this ancient wisdom, whether, you know, it's from books, as we've talked about from the Russells or, or whether it's, you know, the Tao, the Vedas, I mean, there's a number of, of books that basically give us a lot of instruction as far as how we might live our best potential life. And, and, and I also really resonate to the namaste, which is, uh, of course, we, we greet each other or, or say farewell to each other sometimes with that, which, as I understand it, means the divine in me bows to the divine in you, all part of the same thing. And so if we can look at each other more as mirrors to each other than separate entities trying to compete with each other, because every ecosystem that thrives thrives from collaboration, not competition. The answer to the prisoners, prisoner's dilemma, which is two prisoners caught separated, what's their best outcome is tit for tat. So collaboration, agreeing with each other. And I think that as we see this return voyage that we've talked about, I think it looks like us together versus us against each other as part of what we need to do to heal. And part of that is to help change not only some of the individual teaching, but really the framework in which medicine is delivered, because medicine now is delivered in, you know, in packets like garages and service centers, where we basically look at the technical, and as Matt said, the material. And I think that we have to blend that with the spiritual, but also really with philosophy, maybe a narrow word here, but to really start to embrace those emotions and feelings and which are all creative energies. 
And if we can learn to regulate those so that we are sending the energies of health, which I think are much higher vibration energies, then I believe that's the way that we heal ourselves and heal each other. Yes. Um, and I would definitely add to that uh, the earth and the planet. Um, the more we approach our healing with the healing of the earth and the planet, the more we'll be able to understand and experience what harmony is truly, um, which is the essence of therapy as actually that which brings back harmony. I agree. And I think that what you just said is so powerful, not because of only the sacred geometry that we see, you know, the golden ratio and Fibonacci sequence and all that, but also the fact that everything on this plane probably has a life to it, you know, the secret life of trees. And I mean, so we really share this, this plane, this life plane with all not just with some, not just with humans, not just with these trees or the, it's with everything. And, and if we look at everything has a base consciousness as an individuated sort of part of the whole as an experiential so, and mind as the sort of the frame that goes through everything, anything that can decay and die is not mind. Mind is, I think, eternal, as, as, as you guys have said. And if you want to call mind creator or God or Buddha or Tao or whatever you want to call it, I think it's part of the same thing. But I think fundamentally it's frequency. And those frequencies are creative. And the frequencies then in coherent states give us the material, which I think we are actively creating by interfacing with it. But we don't realize it, you know, the Maya, the veil of, of forgetfulness. And I think that that's lightning. And I think on the cycle back home again, it will continue to get lighter and lighter. And we will realize what we would refer to as heaven. And I think as alchemists, which is, I think, our real frame here, is not to escape this life, but to embrace it and to transition what some people might be say may say today is hell on earth. We really, I think, are here to try to help facilitate this turning into heaven on earth, which is really a belief mindset, um, emotion, sort of um, confidence that we can create whatever we decide to create um, as powerful creators here. And, and I do think that when that changes, so will everything else. Thank you so much. Um, before we end, actually, I, I wanted to to add that um, it's interesting because in f we, we refer to, you know, science, consciousness, and how those are linked. And um, in French, actually, the, the word science is science, and consciousness is conscience, which literally means uh, with science. Um, so I thought that was interesting and, and shows how there's such deep um, meaning and, and, and insights and, and beauty uh, in, in understanding the, the actual words uh, we're using. And thank you for providing clarity on the world of mind today. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. So nicely said. And Marcus, thank you as well. Thank you to everyone for listening to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus Underwood, for leading the production of the Garden and the Moon podcast channel. And um, I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>